Have you ever taken things into your own hands and it hasn't gone well for you? Have you ever taken things of life into your own hands and it hasn't gone well? I have, and I had to think about of the manifold times that's happened, which one I'm going to pick to illustrate this. But let me pick a moment when I was learning to drive. I was learning to drive. I think I had my L's, maybe my P's. And I was in my dad's ute. Now, this ute, um, you don't have to know utes or vehicles, but it's, it was an XF Falcon ute. If you know the XF Falcon ute, powerful engine, very light in the back end kind of ute. Goes pretty quick on the highway. And growing up, I'd always seen my dad do something which I thought was pretty cool when he saw a snake on the road. So if you're on bitumen, hard top, and you see a snake on the road, and, and kids don't do this at home because you shouldn't be driving anyway, but adults don't do this at home anyway because it's dangerous, right? You know, if you know how to do this, fine, but if you see a snake on the road, just driving over a snake won't actually kill it because right? they kind of flatten out, won't break their back. So what you do, and I saw my dad do this so many times, you see a snake on bitumen, hard top, you see it, you slow down, and you just gently tap the brakes as you go over the snake, skid over the snake, and it'll break its back. You'll kill the snake, right? Now, I don't know how you feel about snakes. My in-laws have tanks of snakes in their lounge room. I feel uneasy about those things. But they're in the tank. So this is not against snakes. This is a story about my foolishness. So let's get back to that story. I'd seen this so many times. I'm driving my dad's ute, XF Falcon, Ute, four litre, light in the back end. We're going along the gravel road on the way to our farmhouse. So we'd off the bitumen. There's about three kilometres of just council gravel road. And um, I see a snake. And I thought, I'm going to be like dad. I'm going to take things into my hands. I'm going to take the initiative. And so as we get closer to this snake, doing about 80 k's an hour on a gravel road, I just slam the brakes. Like, I lock up. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get that snake. And all of a sudden, everything went sideways. Literally sideways. Like Taylor Swift, literally sideways. The ute went and off into the table drain and at about 80, 70, 60 k's an hour, going past trees, little pine trees, until it came to rest about a foot from, well, a foot, what is a foot in metro? You know, a short distance, a third of a metre, from a gum tree. And my dad just turned to me and said, we're not going to do that again, are we? <laughs> I said, no, no, we're not. Have you ever taken things into your own hands thinking, you've got this, you know better, you know how to deal with this, and it's gone sideways, it has not gone well? This is the testimony of this passage in Genesis 12. In fact, the language of going well is in the Scriptures, it's in that passage. Things going well for me and things not going well is written into this passage. It's Abram's intent. Have a look there. As we heard it read, and it's connected to our cross-reference passage in Hebrews 11, we hear a lot about Abram and his life, man of faith, but here in this scene, things go sideways, things don't go well, and the question is, what do we need 
to see when things don't go well. First, we need to see two things. It's on your service sheet on the outline on page six, that sermon outline. There are two things we need to see. We need to see that our temptation is to distrust that the Lord is in control. That is a natural inclination of the human heart, is to distrust that God's got this. We, we tend to, to fear the circumstances or other things or people and not trust that God is in control. That's the first thing we need to see. The second thing is this. We need to see all the more that the Lord is in control more than we realised, more than we even believed beforehand. He's in control. The context of this episode, of course, is the first half of Genesis 12. So if you've got your Bibles there, and I do hope you have them there, you'll see in the first half of Genesis 12, the context is marvellous, it's beautiful. It's when Abram was called out from being a worshipper of idols to worship God. I'm not sure if you know this or have heard this before, but Abram, you know, we think great man of faith. Lots of the world religions look back to Abram or Abraham. He becomes Abraham because Abram means father and Abraham means father of many. Uh, or father of many nations, so he goes from being dad to big daddy. But um, people look to Abraham, right, and they go, wow, he's, he's amazing, man of faith, never wavered, Romans 4 says, and we'll see how that's read in a moment and understand that. But when you look to Abram, he was a pagan. He was an idol worshipper. He, he was a person who was living in Ur of the Chaldeans, down in southern Babylonia. He's an idol worshipper. He was a nobody. And what changes his life is that God elects him. God picks him. Abram doesn't go, you know what, my life is just, I'm going to need to go on a search, a mystic search for God. I need to look at world religions currently at the time, Babylonian myth. And all. He's not doing that. In fact, we read in Joshua 24 verse 2 this. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, like way over east, way over there. Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Abram was a pagan worshipping idolater. But here's what happens for Abram. Never before. Never before had an idol spoken to Abram. Never before on his mantelpiece, on his idol shelf, anything he fashioned out of the fire, anything he worshipped at Ur and the Chaldeans, they often worshipped the moon. The moon had never spoken. But then all of a sudden, the God who is living and real speaks and says, I'm going to give you a land and make you a people and the whole world is going to be blessed. And this is God's salvation project that we see from the beginning. The story of us and the God who saves. This is what God is doing and he picks, he plucks Abram and picks him. And he gives him promises, great promises. We see in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, those promises, the promise of a place, the promise of a people, and there's a blessing. And the blessing is the overarching beauty of the promise. We see in verse 2 and 3. Because God says to Abram, and we need to remember this for this episode in the second half of Genesis 12. What was Abram promised? Hear what he was promised. You can look at it in verse 2 and 3. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. 
And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is a rock solid, eternal life warranty, guarantee. The sticker is on the promise. God does not break his promises. You are blessed. You are safe. You are mine. And you are cared for. And that promise is the gospel for the globe. It's the good news for the globe. Abram's given that promise. And it looks like from Genesis 12, the first half, well, Abram's the kind of man, he can never get anything wrong. He's got the promise. He's a great man of faith. He'll get everything right. But as we walk with Abram, who becomes Abraham in Genesis 17, we're going to see he is just like us. He is often wrong. He's not getting everything right. Because that's what happens next. His temptation is to not trust that the Lord's got this. Sure, he has circumstances around him that are high-pressure circumstances. Have a look there. We look in verse 10. Genesis 12, verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land. Just pause. We can look over that and go, oh, yeah, you know, it was a drought. It's like Australia. It gets dry. And we need to understand famine, to understand the pressures that Abram and his household were under. We can often say it was the circumstances that made me fail, can't we? And you could probably understand for Abram what's going on for him. There's a famine in the land. He needs to organise his household. The pressure is great. We don't experience famine in Australia. We just don't. I'll contend with you if you disagree. We don't. We have poverty. We have homelessness, and if you want to serve them, come with me and join in the winter night shelter again this year. And we serve the homeless people. We stay overnight with them up at the scout hall. We serve them food. There is homelessness. There is poverty, yes. But not famine. From 2000 to 2010, in this country, in the region that I grew up in, in 2000, I was 23, and I left home, variety of circumstances and different career path, but 2000... To 2010, the region that I lived in, there was not a single drop of rain that would produce enough for more than seed for next year. Ten years. Ten years, the farmers in the region that I knew and loved and had come from didn't have enough to sell. They didn't have enough for seed to sow it again the next year for ten years straight. And what happened? We had three meals a day, every day. Was there a famine in Australia in 2000 to 2010? There was not. We don't understand famine in this part of the world. We don't understand what it's like, the pressures on your household. We understand poverty, yes, homelessness, yes. We understand what it's like to be poor on a relative scale to the world. But famine is devastating. Famine is watching your children die, is choosing to eat the dog or dead flesh. Famine is devastating. And so we see in verse 10, there's a famine in the land and it's devastating. And when we are so blessed to live in the driest continent on the earth and yet we're the wealthiest continent on the earth. But for many places in the world, that wealth and that 
Lack of famine is a fantasy, and for Abram it was a fantasy, and they've got no other thing to do in the ancient world but go from Canaan. God had sent them there. He had trusted God. God had said, back in earth, if I had a map here, it's like the fertile crescent, if you know it. Over in Babylon, down the south, near the coast, there's Ur, and God had seen them sovereignly go from Ur up to Haran and, and up there at Haran, Abram's father, Terah, dies. And then God calls Abram and says, I want you to go across down to Canaan. And he says in chapter 12, nearly part, there are Canaanites living in the land. There's a bit of an obstacle already. But there's Canaanites there, but go and live in Canaan. That's the promised land. He's in the promised land. And then all of a sudden he can't be in the promised land. That's where he's meant to be, but he can't. He can't feed his family. And with significant pressures, he knows the only place in that part of the world to get food is where the Nile is. It's where Egypt is. That's the place. And so he takes his family to Egypt. We read there, to sojourn, verse 10. It just means it's a temporary stay. Abram had trusted God. But now he's got to go. He goes to survive. And this is a test of his faith. And he's going to see many tests of his faith. Isn't that what life is often? Abram had trusted God. Surely nothing would shake that trust. But friends, self-preservation can easily lead to selfishness. And Abram starts to take things into his own hands. Now, he's not like Peter. Last week, we finished in John's Gospel. We went all the way through John's Gospel. We finished with Peter. He's not like Peter who denies God. And Peter, by God's grace, is restored, aren't we all? He doesn't deny God, but notice what he's doing? Well, let's have a look at this episode. As they travel, they enter Egypt. There's Abram, Sarai. Lot's with them, by the way. He's still there. We'll see him next time. Lot's there, the nephew. There's a whole caravan traveling with Abram. He's already fairly wealthy in a sense. But as he travels to Egypt, and as they cross the border, he turns and talks to his wife. It's like one of those car trips you have. If you're married, you know, you have that conversation. This is one of those conversations, but it gets awkward pretty quick. He turns and talks to his wife, and first he says, You're beautiful. Right? He says, you can read there, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And that would be so flattering for her, wouldn't it? Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And they're actually not, they're not young. They're kind of middle-aged, bordering upon a bit older, 65-ish. Thank you. You're a, she must have been flattered, her husband's love. But what comes next must then send a shiver, a cold shiver through her. Because then he says, and when the Egyptians see you, They will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Um, Okay, Abram, uh, so what's the plan here? This is not sounding like a Valentine's Day card. What's coming next? For for we know God's plan, and it doesn't sound like you're factoring that in. He said we wouldn't be killed. What's going on? And then he comes out with it, verse 13. Here's the plan. Say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. Do you notice Abram's plan? 
Now, perhaps he thinks it's a good plan. The Egyptians are worldly. Maps are renowned for just seeing and taking. And perhaps he thinks in his head, his plan is, look, if, he, if we say Sarah is my sister, they'll say, well, you know, the brother protects the household and she's in, she's in his household, so we'll just leave her alone. And Perhaps that's his plan, except it's a bad plan. Because instead of protecting her, the plan actually is set up to fail. He puts her in more danger. And this is what happens. As they go in, Sarai ends up taking it for the team. This is just like the garden and the fall. The sanctity of marriage is going to be sacrificed. Sarai's life will be violated. Her life will actually be in more danger in Pharaoh's harem because she's holding a secret She's not just his sister. And do you notice the wording of Abram again and again? That it may go well for me. Even in an ancient Near East culture, that we could say, well, that's just cultural. It needs to be all about the man, things going well for him. That's not biblical. You want to wrap culture around that? Don't let that be Bible. The Bible has it from the beginning. What is a man supposed to be for his wife, but her servant and protector against evil? This is a terrible exchange. Sarai's life for Abram's life, that's a terrible idea. That's Garden of Eden all over again. That's the fall. Women are to take the fall. This idea is born in sin. It's an idea that comes from a heart that is having trouble to believe that God would actually take care of us. So I've got a better idea, God. I'll take care of me by putting her into the fall. Instead of protecting Sarah, his wife, he just wants to protect himself and forgets God's word of protection. What, friends, was God's promise? What was it? Remember Genesis 12.3? What was it? God promised this. If only Abram would believe it. Here's the promise. I'll bless those who bless you. And who dishonors you? What will God do? Give him a light dusting. Wrap over the knuckles. You naughty, dishonoring people. What would God do? He'll curse them. What is the curse? It's a judgment to death. It's death. Someone dishonors you, they get cursed. That's the promise, Abram. Why won't you believe it? All Abram had to do was to trust in God's gracious word to him. And yet all Abram do is what Adam does in the garden, doesn't trust God's word and puts his wife in danger. Verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. Why the list of the animals? Scholars suggest that camels have only been recently domesticated. So it's like saying, this guy has Holden newts and Ford newts and Hiluxes. You see this? Look at verse 16. Look at the language. He was dealt with well with things go well for Abram how are things going for Sarai I would suggest not well 
And if you think she's got a comfy life in the harem, you think that's fantastic and that's, wow, it's wonderful. And even if we don't, we don't exactly know was she touched or not. But you're Abram's wife. You don't know where he is. Things are going well for him. You're in the harem holding a secret. At any moment, and in the text she's called Pharaoh's wife, Things go well for Abram in a worldly sense. Abram gets to enjoy the abundance of Egypt. Sarah gets to live the lie and be traded like property, pretending to be Pharaoh's woman. God had promised Abram protection, but now Abram is breaking his marriage promises to Sarai. Friends, marital promises are not just broken on the day a divorce is finalised. They are broken when we'd rather sacrifice faithfulness to the other in lots of ways. Things go well for Abram, but things are going badly for his marriage. Can you imagine the trip home, the road trip home between Abram and Sarah? That conversation must have been cold. The only way marriages survive this side of the fall, the only way any friendship or relationship survives, this side of the fall is by grace. You take out God's grace, no relationship survives. And that's what we need to depend upon next. That's what Abram needs to see, that God is more in control than we realised and he's more gracious than we understood. Oh, he plucked Abram out from being an idol-worshipping pagan in Ur. He plucked Abram out from being that. That was gracious. That was unconditional election, wasn't it? But here we see God is even more gracious to Abram because Abram is the one that's messed everything up. How's he going to get out of this? What's he going to do? Form a team? Hey, Lot, um, Sarah is in the harem. Uh, it's looking like it's not great for her right now. Uh, we're going to form a crack unit, you and I, and we're going to go and storm Pharaoh's palace and get her out that's not what he's doing at all but the Lord is in control more than we realised and what we see happen next from verses 17 to 20 it's almost like it's the exodus prelude here's a preview to the exodus notice the language if you know the book of exodus the book of exodus has things like plagues in it God's people captured in captivity are then set free. This is all a preview to what God is going to do for Israel later in the book of Exodus. But we see this, verse 17, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Verse 19, Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. You see, you see the plagues that come don't touch Sarai, they touch Pharaoh's household and Pharaoh lets them go. God is protecting Sarai when Abram is not. God is doing the work of protecting this woman who has no ability to protect herself. God is caring for her. It's like Psalm 105 verse 12. Psalm 105 verse 12. When there are fewer number of little accounts sojourners, Wandering from nation to nation, one kingdom to another, God allowed no one to oppress them or even to touch them. God is there. And Pharaoh asked Abram, why did you do that? 
Why did you say she's my sister? Do you see Abram's answer? Um, Because she is. Now, this is going to get a bit weird for us right now, so I hope you're you're sitting down. Fortunately, you, you nearly all are. Sarai is Abram's half-sister. Now, scholars will tell us, in the ancient Near East, in this part of the world, you could be called a sister if you were perhaps even a cousin or a grandniece. It's possible that goes that relation. But if you trace it and look at it, it is likely that she is his half-sister. Notice what he says. She is my sister. He's coming out with the truth. And we think, well, how could that possibly be? I mean, this is 500 years before the incest laws of Moses. It's not making a claim on whether incest was right or wrong or not at all. Why is he? Do- He's just owning up. But we do see that, well, she's actually his sister. In Genesis 20, here's what happens in Genesis 20, not far away. Abram does it again. Like he, he, the, the very same thing, he does it again. He, he actually goes, there's the king who's Abimelech, and that's what he does. He, for Abimelech, he just pretends that Sarah is just his sister. And Abimelech says, why did you do this? And we read in Genesis 20 this, verse 2, And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech's king of Gerah sent and took Sarah. And, and why is she sister? Because she is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. Genesis 20, verse 12. What's this all mean? She is related to Abram. But that's not the point. Not for Pharaoh. And it shouldn't be the point for you, Abram. She is your wife. And in all of this, as Abram continues to live by fear and not by faith, do you see what God does? God rescues him. He fixes up the mess. Whole Abram's half-sister plan is all about him thinking, God can't protect me. But when his plan fails, it's God who comes and saves. See, when we take things into our own hands and things don't go well, what do we need? We need to see this, that we can trust in the promises of the Lord as he's handed to us, as even today seen at the table of the Lord. For Abram, seeing things not work out for him in Canaan must have been difficult. You had those moments, things are not working out for me, it's difficult. I'd rather move, quit, do something else. He must have had difficult thoughts. When things don't work out for us in life, it is difficult. And when those difficult thoughts come, we need to recognize and ready our minds for this. Because when difficulty comes, what happens is there's a temptation that comes along with difficulty. And that temptation is, let's take things into my own hands because God is not in control here. And we need to ready ourselves for this because Satan loves to whisper in our ears, you're right like he whispered in the ear of Eve, did God really say 
He will never leave you or never forsake you. Did God really say he's with you to the end of the age? Did God really say he died for you on the cross for your sins? Did God really say he rose for your hope? Did God really say he's going to return to judge the living and the dead? Did God really say that he cares for you? Did God really say? We start to believe it. And we start to distrust God. Did God really say he's gentle and lowly towards you for sinners and sufferers? We need to think on God's promises to us like Abram needed to. The reason our minds in difficulty go to all sorts of other places is because often there, my mind, my mind is not full enough with God's promises to me. So when difficulty comes for me, I'm tempted just to take things in my own hands. But if I would fill my mind, my heart, with the things of God and his word that he loves me, he promises to never leave me nor forsake me, that would ready me for any moment. That I'd listen to the voice of Jesus. For when things don't go well for us, that's where God works. That's where God works. For Abram, seeing things not work out in Canaan must have been difficult. What about for you? Can you believe that Jesus says to you, I'm with you always to the end of the age? Which means, in moments of difficulty, do you default to just seeing the problems or do you see opportunities for prayer? I heard an older man say to me once, Russ, we're talking about problems in ministry, in, in in loving and serving a church. And he said, Russ, you'll always have problems. But he said this, you also need to pray for more problems. Ask God for problems, so you've got to ask God for more things to pray about. More things, more reasons to rely upon him. I thought, that's a crazy thing to say, old man. I suspect one day I'll be an old man and I'll be saying that to someone else. Now, I'm not going to go and say, God, I haven't got enough problems. Could you give me some more? I guarantee I won't do that. But it does help me see my problems as opportunities for prayer. To actually trust God in this, to rely upon him in everything. That's what prayer is. The Bible commends Abram for his faith. We heard in our cross-reference passage from Hebrews 11, and if you read Romans 4 you see Abram's commended. He's called this great man of faith. But even the kids' books can see this. I was talking with Nick and Meg, and Meg said that kid, that, that book, we, I think we have it here, but the promise book has got the bit on Abram and how he feared rather than had faith. Now, how do we reconcile that with, with Romans 4? In Romans 4 we read in verse 20, no belief made him unwaver concerning the promise of God. How do we reconcile that? No belief made him unwaver? Like if you track the man's life, this happens again. What? Um, Because there's a comma and a following clause in Romans 4. And it goes like this. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Problems, difficulties, even things where we take things in our own hands are yet where the gracious God who's all-powerful, he's not thwarted by that, he's not upset by that, he's not like, goodness, you've so messed it up, I can't do anything about this now. You've broken the warranty. No, he comes in and says, ah, 
Watch this. Watch this. How do we know that? How do we know God is guaranteed that he's trustworthy? You can trust him in all circumstances? Friends, two words, the cross. As we turn to the table, we remember the one who looks at a world gone wrong. The whole world is like this because we take things into our own hands. Communities are like this because we take things in our own hands. Churches become like this because we take things into our own hands. Where we'd rather have bitterness and fight than pray and love. But then the Lord says, look at that mess. This is where I work. And what does he do? He doesn't, send them, he doesn't send us a manual on how to do better like we heard in the kids' talk. We don't get a book on, here's how to improve your life. Go to the self-help shelf and improve your life by Christianity book. He doesn't give us a manual. Drowning people don't need us to throw them a manual on how to swim. What do they need? A rescuer. He doesn't send us a manual, he sends us a rescuer. And as he sends his rescuer, this rescuer comes in and says, I know you've taken things in your own hands, i got this. And then he dies on a cross. Because that's how he saves. Jesus does the opposite to what Abram does. Look how Abram treats his bride. How does Jesus treat his bride, the church? From heaven he came and sought her. To die for her, to shed his blood for her. He's the one who goes in to the worldly harem, who gets mocked in captivity to sin. He's the one that goes in and says, I'm going in. So you don't have to. And he says, trust me. Trust me with your life, with your difficulties, with your problems. Put your faith in Jesus. As we turn to the table, we see the one, the Lord Jesus, who did not waver when he was tested. Because Jesus is the new and better Abraham. He's the better one. He's the perfect man of faith. And we see he rescues us from our fear and failings. So friends, as we turn to that table, as we sing and come to the supper of the Lord, instead of blaming God or complaining about our circumstances, in moments of difficulty, do you see this is a new opportunity to trust him? In Imagine if we took all the things in our own hands and that's all, all God left us with that. Like we just took everything in, in life in our own hands and then God said, I'm done, I'm finished here. Exit stage right. What would happen to us? To quote this passage, things would not go well. By God's grace, they do. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word that as we sojourn in this world, we are safe in your hands. Thank you that you rescue us from our lives of sin and mess. Thank you that you renew our minds, refit us for ministry to one another, that your words of promise we can put our faith in, we never need to try another way. You're so gloriously good. You're so gracious and we live our lives in worship of you. And so we pray that as you save the world, that all creatures of our God and King would trust and rejoice 
in your great love. Amen and amen.